So today we begin a new series of sermons on the servant songs of the prophet Isaiah. It's going to be our special Lenten series. I hope that you are reading Isaiah this Lent. Uh, using the devotional, it breaks up the Isaiah reading for you. Every week you have a number of chapters to get through, and the devotionals help you focus on certain themes of Isaiah. So I hope that it's profitable to you. If you didn't start last week, that's fine. Pick up a devotional start today. Or that's fine. Uh, a little bit of Isaiah is better than no Isaiah. So get whatever, as much Isaiah as you can. But today we're going to start a series on the servant songs. And before I do that, let me give you just a very brief overview of the book of Isaiah to help us in our reading, but also help us see where these songs are positioned in the book. Isaiah had a long ministry as a prophet. He began when King Uzziah died and then spanned the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Isaiah prophesied in Jerusalem and Judea, and at that time Jerusalem lived in fear of the Assyrian invasion. At one point the city was under siege, and miraculously the angel of the Lord rescued them. The central question of the book of course, in the shadow of the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians and whatever other power comes against God's people. The central question of the book posed by Isaiah to the people of God is, whom will you trust? Whom will you trust to deliver you? Of course, they were tempted, like us, to pursue human solutions. In their case, it was things like fortifying the city, or hiring the Egyptians, or offering sacrifices to idols. But the Lord all along wanted them simply to trust Him to deliver them. The Judean leaders failed to model faith in the Lord. And so throughout the book, the desire for a king, a real king, a true king, grows stronger and stronger. Will Hezekiah finally get his act together? Will he be that king that they're waiting for? Or will it be a pagan king like Cyrus? Ultimately, the Lord himself anoints his own king, whom Isaiah refers to as the Lord's servant. The king has promised not only to deliver Israel from all oppression, but to deliver the whole world and bring peace and justice to the world. And Isaiah ends his book with describing the new heaven and the new earth, the renewed creation inherited by all those who simply trust the Lord and His servant. So the so-called servant songs are poetic descriptions of this promised king, this promised Messiah, this anointed servant of the Lord. Now, of course, Isaiah's original leader, readers studied with great interest all the hints that Isaiah was, was placing around throughout the book. They were looking at this mysterious figure of the Lord's servant and imagined, based on Isaiah's poetic descriptions, what this divine deliverer would be like. We, however, know who the servant of the Lord is. In many places throughout the New Testament, Isaiah's servant songs are quoted as descriptions of Jesus Christ. So during Lent this year, We'll be looking at the servant songs. There are four kind of self-contained servant songs, but of course the servant language is throughout the latter part of Isaiah. Well, we'll look at these four servant songs in great detail and discover or rediscover the person of Jesus, the Lord's anointed and our deliverer. 
And as we do that, I'm sure we will find many, many reasons to trust him. Because that's my goal. My goal is, your goal is to trust Jesus. We do so by focusing on him and seeing him as he is. So this morning, we'll consider the first part of the first servant song and see Jesus as a gentle ruler of the world, a gentle ruler of the world. So let me read to you Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles or just listen as I read. This is God speaking. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. This is God's word. I'd like us to consider three things from this passage. A very simple outline this morning. Number one, that Jesus is God's servant. He's presented to us as God's servant. Number two, he's presented to us as our servant. He comes to serve us. And finally, we'll make some application from this passage by considering ourselves as his servants. So God's servant, our servant, and we as his servants. Now, if you read Isaiah, you will notice that in the previous section, Isaiah 41, Isaiah rails against Judah's idols as useless. So, for example, in Isaiah 41, 24, we read, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Talking about Israel's idols. These false gods that they have set up and sacrificed for and hoped would deliver them. They are useless, Isaiah says. In Isaiah 41, 29, he says, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And so then we get to chapter 42, and we have the same language. In 41, he says, Behold, they're useless. Behold, they're a delusion. And now in 42, he says, Behold, my servant. Now you've got to read through the book to, to feel that kind of movement. Where he's saying, look at the idols, they're useless. Look at these deluded people who worship them. And then he says, look at my servant. In contrast to the idols of Israel, the Lord's servant appears as a real God who can deliver. Now this is God's solution to the human predicament. Now remember, the theme of Isaiah is, whom will you trust? And so people are going after all these idols, and God says, no, they're useless. Here is the real deliverer. Here is the solution to your oppression, to your sin, to your despair. And notice that as God presents this deliverer, he presents this, this servant, as he calls him, it's all done in Trinitarian language. The Father is speaking about the Son, on whom the Spirit rests. Now, 
this passage, if you just read it, right, it kind of gives you hints, kind of gives you these images. But then when you get to Matthew 3 and the Lord's baptism, when Jesus is baptized, it's enacted now. It's, we can see it fulfilled. Look at Matthew 3, 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, the servant of the Lord who has now come, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, again you have the same language, behold, look at him. The heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What we have here in Isaiah 42 is God's declaration of how he will deliver the world. This is God's plan. It's not Hezekiah's or Cyrus's plan or the Judean idolater's plan or the Egyptian general's plan. This is God's plan for deliverance. And so we ought to pay attention. I knew Divinely appointed king is promised. A king unlike any other the world has seen. And he is promised to bring justice to the nations. Justice to the nations. Now biblically it is the king's job to establish justice in his realm, in his nation. But here this king's realm is the whole world. The nations means the whole world, beyond Israel, all the peoples of the world. This king has promised to bring justice to. Now, biblically, justice is much bigger than what we think typically justice is. Justice is more than just punishment of evil or crime. Justice is restoring peace and harmony and bringing prosperity. Eugene Peterson translates the last line of verse 1 in this way. He says, he'll set everything right among the nations. So what is Jesus coming to do? He's coming to set everything right among all the nations of the world. The Lord says, when my servant comes to rule, he will make the world as it ought to be. Everything will function as it is supposed to function. Notice the end of verse 4. And the coastlands wait for his law. The farthest reaches of the world, the islands are waiting for the teaching, for the governance, for the rule of the servant. They're longing for the just rule of the servant to make everything right. You see, God's promise goes beyond our notion of justice. That includes it, but it goes well beyond it. Now think about it this way. I want us to see the the greatness of the promise. Think about it this way. What does justice look like in Ukraine? We pray, many of us pray for peace and justice in Ukraine, but what does it look like? Well, certainly, justice means the end of violence, right? The removal of the occupying army, yes, and the punishment of war criminals, yes, that's justice. We're praying for that. But in biblical terms, justice would include all aspects of society and persons. In biblical understanding, justice will mean everybody and everything brought into balance and harmony. So the end of violence and punishment of oppressors, yes, but also the end of government corruption. Children return to their homes and families. 
the healing of the trauma of war, economic stability, and not least of all, a spiritual revival. That's what God wants for humanity. Now, we may settle for something less than that. We may just settle for law and order. But what the Lord wants is complete transformation, complete restoration, and health, and beauty, and goodness returning to this world, and not just returning in glimpses as we experience it now, but ruling, His righteousness ruling this creation. Now, this is what this promise is, because justice, biblically, is bringing everything under the rule of God, fixing everything that's broken, healing everything that's damaged, and reconciling all conflicts, including our internal conflicts, and including our conflict with God. This is the promise we get in Isaiah 42 in this song, in this poem. This is what Jesus is being sent to accomplish. Nothing less than that. To bring forth justice to the nations. Don't you long for that? Isn't that what everybody wants? And God says, to get there, I'm sending you my servant. He's saying to get to that restoration, renewal of all creation and the harmony and balance of God's world. He says, for that purpose, I am sending Jesus into this world. He's God's servant. He is God's solution to our problem. And the Lord's servant is promised to bring justice to the nations, but not in the way that other kings attempt to bring justice. Now look at verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Well, come on, that's what kings do, right? You throw a parade. You show off your weapons. You subdue your enemies. You come in with great noise, right? Great pomp and, and presenting yourself as the more powerful person. That's how you get things done. That's how you get justice. But not this king. He's not like Cyrus. He's not like Hezekiah. This king will not force others to listen to him because he is the loudest. That's what this verse means. He's not a person who can just scream louder than everybody else and everybody has to listen to them. This is not how Jesus rules. He will not use his power to force others into submitting to his just rule. In other words, he will fulfill the royal task of justice. He's a king. He will bring justice, but he refuses to use his royal power as other kings do. The Lord's servant, it turns out, comes to us as our servant. Look, look at Matthew 12. As I said, the servant songs of Isaiah are quoted all over the New Testament. Ryan quoted one today when we had our our assurance of forgiveness from 1 Peter. But here Matthew quotes our passage. He quotes completely the four verses that we just read. Now he quotes it from the Greek translation, so it sounds a little different. But he quotes it because something happened. Jesus did something, and Matthew thought of this passage, okay? So what prompts Matthew to quote this servant song? Well, let's read. Matthew 12, verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, 
Jesus is withdrawing. Now there's the quiet. He's, he's not going towards the crowd. He's going away from the crowd. He's withdrawing. And many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. And then Matthew says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Matthew sees Jesus healing people and withdrawing. And then when people want to go and tell others about him, he says, don't, don't tell anybody about me. He says, be quiet about what happened. And Matthew says, that reminds me of Isaiah 42, because that's the kind of king that was promised to bring justice to the world. This kind of hidden gentleness this kind of quiet compassion is what makes Matthew think of Jesus as the anointed solution to human problems. Caring for the most vulnerable, refusing the publicity, is what identifies Jesus as the Lord's servant sent to bring restoration to our world. Does that surprise you? If you are surprised, you are in good company. Everyone is surprised at Jesus. He's not what we expect a divine king should be. Everyone expects him to come, take the throne, enforce God's law in the world. Many of us are praying for that. We're praying for Jesus to do that. But instead, he comes to serve us. He comes as a gentle ruler. His plan is to restore the world, not by power, but by grace. Instead of taking power, accumulating it, and using it to force his agenda on everyone, which is what any other king would do, Jesus gives up his power. Now that pushes on your notions of what Jesus should be. Good, because that's right. We expect him to be someone he's not. We have to read in Scripture his descriptions, and we have to read his prophecies about him. We have to understand who he actually is and then conform our understanding of him to that and not force our expectations on him. Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he's, he's God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to his power, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This anointed king that's sent to redeem the world took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, the very human beings he came to save. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Jesus. That's the kind of king, that's the kind of gentle ruler he is. Now let me show you one of the most surprising passages in the Bible. Luke 12, 37. Luke 12, 37. 
You read a passage like that, you think you know where it's going, and then it turns completely opposite direction. But that's Jesus. Luke 12, 37. It's in the context of waiting for his return. It's in the context of being vigilant, watching for his return, being ready, not falling asleep, not getting distracted, but waiting for him to return. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Okay, we get that part. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, he will dress himself for service and have them recline a table and he will come and serve them. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. Jesus says, you wait for me and when I come and I find you waiting, I will make a feast for you and I will serve your food to you. That's what Jesus says. I mean, it's, it's incredible. This is the anointed king that God promises would come and restore the world. And how is he going to do that? Not by power, not by violence, not by shouting louder than everybody else, but by serving us. Gentle. No other king does that. And yet we see Jesus do that over and over again through the Gospels. He washes the disciples' feet. The disciples are uncomfortable with that. But he does that to serve them. He makes them breakfast on the beach after his resurrection. He feeds them. He serves them. That's what Jesus does. He comes as our servant. And he is especially focused on serving those who are desperate, who are broken. He said that he's not, he didn't come to to serve those who think they're healthy, but those who know they are sick. Now look at verse 3 in Isaiah 42. It's a a beautiful verse, and I hope most of you know it, but if you don't, it's a beautiful, encouraging verse. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick, or the older translation says a smoking flax, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now what's the image? A bruised reed is a stick that's almost broken in two, right? It's it's kind of mangled. It's half broken, but it's not broken yet completely. But if you just lean on it, it will break. A faintly burning wick is a flickering candle that's about to go out. And the promise here is that Jesus will not break the bruised reed. And he will not put out the faintly burning wick of a lamp or a candle. He comes to restore, not crush, those who are struggling. you gotta, you got to hear this, this, this verse. Because this is who he is. This is why he came. The Lord's servant comes as the king of the bruised and the battered and the broken. He's the king of the doubting and desperate and depressed. He's the king of the hurting, the hidden, and the humble. When you read about his people in the Bible, these are the kinds of people you see. Who's with Jesus, right? Who belongs to his kingdom? Who follows him? Read the scriptures and you will find people who are battered, broken, and bruised. The humble those who know their need, those who know they cannot make it without him. The only thing that's keeping them from being completely broken in two and completely, their flame completely going out is Jesus. 
That, those are his people. That's us. The promise is that he will not crush you when you're struggling. In Peterson's translation, it says, He won't brush aside the bruised and the hurt, and he won't disregard the small and insignificant, but he'll steadily and firmly set things right. Now, let me give you three biblical examples of the servant's grace to the bruised reeds and flickering wicks. Now, these are people from the Bible. You will see, I hope, you will see how the Lord treats his people, and I hope that it's of tremendous value to you and me today. Now, the first example is Abraham. Now, when you read about Abraham in the New Testament, like Hebrews 11, for example, right? He's a model of faith. Many other places in, in the New Testament, in Romans, he's presented as a person that we are to look up to, as a person who, who had this tremendous faith, credited to him as righteousness, right? And of course, it's true. Abraham obeyed God when he was called to move, and he went. When he was told to sacrifice Isaac, he went up that hill. He believed God's promise of a son. That's true. He had faith. However, you know from reading Genesis, and the Bible is honest about these things, that Abraham's faith was often weak. He was not always faithful to God's call. You may remember that he passed Sarah as his sister twice that we know of. I mean, we, only, we have two recorded cases. There could be more. Now, how can a person of great faith do something like this? You may remember Abraham's relationship with Hagar. How, how can a person, knowing that God will provide an heir to him, would sleep with his wife's servant? His faith was like a faintly burning flame of a candle. But Jesus does not quench a faintly burning wick. Instead, the Lord protected and sustained the weak faith of Abraham. And then, this is where it gets really cool, and you'll see that in the other two examples. He overlooked his doubts and presented him as the father of the faithful in the New Testament. That's what the Lord does. He took what, that, that, that light, that flame of faith that was barely flickering at times, right? The Lord protected it, sustained it, strengthened it, and then he overlooked all the other times of doubt. And then when you read the New Testament, Abraham is a model of faith. Now, the second example is Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is incredible, guys. Look at 1 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6. And we preached on that passage not too long ago when we worked through 1 Peter it says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Sarah in 1 Peter is presented as a holy woman marked by humility and trust. The only time Sarah called Abraham Lord is in Genesis 18.12. And you know what the context of that is? She was laughing at the Lord's promise. Saying, my, my Lord is old, she said. 
will I have the pleasure? That's, that's the context. He said, how can this promise be true? That I will have a son? My Lord Abraham is old. I am old. That's the context. She's laughing at God's promise. When the, the Lord confronts her, she says, I didn't laugh. To his face, refusing to admit that she was laughing at the promise of God. Jeremiah Burroughs, the, the Puritan, says, If there is an abundance of evil and a little good, God rather passes by the evil and takes notice of the good. Thus how graciously God deals with us. If there is but one good word among a great many ill, what an interpretation God makes. Out of that whole exchange, right, the Lord, through Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, plucked one good word, one good word out of that, out of a dozen words she said or something like that. And the Lord says, she's a holy woman, and you are her children if you walk in obedience and fear of the Lord and humility and trust. I mean, Sarah was a bruised reed. But Jesus doesn't break bruised reeds. He builds them up, them up and then he shows them off. That's what Jesus does. Third example is Job. I'm trying to show you that that's consistent through Scripture. James 5.11 presents Job as an example of steadfastness and patience and suffering. Was Job that? Sometimes, <laughs> There were moments. There were other moments, too. Listen to Richard Sibbs. He says, You have heard of the patience of Job, quoting James 5.11. And then Sibbs says, We have heard of his impatience, too. But it pleased God mercifully to overlook that. Isn't it amazing that all Job's impatience and complaining is overlooked and only his steadfastness highlighted by James? Why? Why does the Lord treat us like that? Because a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. It's amazing, but it's consistent. How can the Lord overlook our sin? How can he overlook Sarah's unbelief, Abraham's unfaithfulness, Job's impatience, Peter's instability, and everybody else you can name almost, with no exceptions, almost. There's a couple good guys, but almost everybody else. God has to overlook something. How can he do that? How can he be so gracious that that he will do that, find something good in us, highlight that. How can God do that and still pursue justice in its full scope? Well, we'll get a hint in our passage. Although we need to wait until the last servant song in Isaiah 53 to see it fully explained, but we get a hint here. Look at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Isaiah is subtle here. The word translated as discouraged is the same as bruised in verse 3. Same word. And the word translated grow faint is the same as faintly burning in verse 3. 
The point is that Jesus will persevere in spite of suffering. He will bring justice even if he has to be bruised. And his flame of grace will never be put out. This is what Isaiah is hinting at, that there will be a time when this anointed servant who came to be our servant by grace, who came to, to restore these broken reeds and flickering flames, he himself will be bruised. And he himself will, his flame would almost, almost go out. And because of the cross, because of what he experienced himself, he's able to deal gently with us even while he is still pursuing justice. You see, Jesus himself was bruised for us, and his life was quenched for us. Because on the cross, he took the full weight of God's retributive justice in our place, the retribution for evil. He can bring restorative justice to the world by grace. This is the kind of king he is. Now, finally, how does it apply to us? Just two points of application. First, go to him. Go to him and trust his grace. He's a gentle ruler. If you feel like a faintly burning wick and a bruised reed, you are exactly who he wants in his kingdom. You don't need to get stronger for him to love you. He loves your weakness. He loves your struggle because he can come in and help you in it. Himself was bruised for you. So if you're bruised, you come to him. He will not let your flickering, failing faith go out. If you're struggling in your faith, he will see whatever little spark of faith that you have and he will magnify it and he will blow it into flame. He will accept you and he will sustain you by his grace. Now here's an illustration quickly of how God sees us in Christ. Imagine a little child going to pick some flowers for her father. She goes in the garden, picks all sorts of plants and other things found in the backyard, bunches them together and takes them inside. The mother looks through them with the child gathered picks out and throws away weeds, pieces of electrical wire, plastic straws, feathers, sticks, whatever else the child found. Keeps the flowers, arranges them in a beautiful bouquet, ties them with a pretty ribbon, and gives them back to the child to give to her dad. When we come to God, Christ takes away the sins and he finds faith and virtue and he rearranges them Bides them together with the crimson ribbon of his sacrifice and presents them to the Father as a gift pleasing to him. This is how he brings justice to the world. Taking the punishment upon himself and giving us grace. So if you don't know Jesus, this is who he is. Now you may be surprised at who he is, but this is who he is. This is the kind of king that God sent to restore the world and to restore you. So go to him. And trust his grace. And if you've been walking with Jesus, and maybe this is a particularly difficult part of your life, a difficult season, he knows 
exactly where you are bruised. He knows exactly where your flame is flickering. And he is not put off by that. He's drawn to you. He wants to come and restore you and help you and sustain you. That's the first point of application. Go to him and trust his grace. And secondly, become the kind of servant Jesus is. It's not uncommon for believers to be called God's servants in the New Testament. If we are his servants, if we're in his kingdom, and he is that kind of a king, shouldn't we reflect his character, his methods, and his goals? We should pursue justice as he does, using the same gracious methods as he does. We should pursue justice, right? We should not be ambivalent to sin. We should not be ambivalent to evil. But our idea of justice has to be much bigger than our regular human notion. And as we pursue that kind of justice, let's use his methods, his gracious, gentle methods. Look at 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25. It's illustrated as Paul instructs Timothy, a young pastor, to imitate the Lord's servant, Jesus. He says, and the Lord's servant, now addressing Timothy. Timothy is the Lord's servant. We are his servants. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. I mean, don't you just see Jesus in this passage? Paul is just saying, Timothy, you've got to be like Jesus. If you're his servant, you have to be like the Lord's servant Jesus. So you're gentle with people, even your opponents, even your enemies. You're gentle with them. You don't just get loud and louder than everybody else and then people start listening to you. You don't quarrel. You don't fight with them. Because your goal is that maybe, maybe God will grant them repentance. Leading them to the knowledge of the truth. You see, justice is not compromised. There is a truth. And they need to know it. But how do you lead them there? Through gentleness, as Jesus does. Both pursuit of justice and the gentleness of Jesus is right here. If the Spirit of the Lord is on Jesus as he rules, shouldn't the same Spirit bear fruit in our lives? Shouldn't we, like Jesus, exhibit love and patience and joy and gentleness? Yes, gentleness is fruit of the Spirit. Shouldn't we be like that? If the same Spirit is on us as His servants, if we're in the same kingdom, we submit to the same Lord, we should have the same fruit of the Spirit in us. How do you treat a bruised reed or a smoking flax in your life? How do you treat somebody who's hurting, somebody who's struggling, somebody who's veering off course, somebody who's making bad choices, somebody who doesn't believe the way they're supposed to believe? How do you treat them? You ought to treat him like Jesus does. Because a bruised reed he does not break, and a smoking flax he does not quench. And neither should we. Same goals and same methods if we are his children.